Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, June 29th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, University of Mississippi Medical Center breaks ground on a new nursing school. Then, June is Alzheimer's and Brain Awareness Month. Plus, the state's official fruit will soon be the blueberry. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Doctors and lawmakers participated in a groundbreaking ceremony yesterday for a new school of nursing at the University of Mississippi Medical Center in Jackson. The building will be located on the main campus. Officials say it could help with the state's nursing shortage. Our Lacey Alexander speaks with Tina Martin, interim dean for the School of Nursing. Our facility was at capacity, and now we're going to have state-of-the-art equipment and students are going to have access to that. There was a lot of talk in this event about legislative support. Uh, Talk to me about the unique relationship between UMMC and our state legislature. Well, I know there are a lot of competing priorities, but I feel like that UMC School of Nursing has shown that we're able to produce quality graduates that are ready to transition to practice, and I hope they recognize that and see that we, we are a leader in nursing education. How long can we expect, uh, when can we expect this new building to go up? I think uh, 2026. So a couple years. For those students that are maybe getting one degree in one building and another degree in another, what are some of the major differences they're going to see in their education? Well, one thing that they're going to see is more opportunity for collaboration. Because in our new building, one of the things that students repeatedly said was there's not enough study space. And we made sure that that was going to happen in this space. So it's a student-friendly space. They're going to be have multiple areas of, for, for meeting and collaborating with not just students but faculty as well. Among the students attending the ceremony, Gordon Gartrell, Ph.D. candidate for the School of Nursing. The building likely won't be done before he graduates, but hopes it can improve education opportunities for future students. I will hopefully, however, have a faculty position at the School of Nursing in an adjunct capacity upon graduation. That's awesome. So talk to me about what a new facility means for your cohort. 
So uh, research is very limited here in Mississippi. Um, as a nursing scientist uh, with a doctorate degree, it's very important that we have the space and the support to be able to engage in teaching the future generation of nurses, but also conducting um, our own nursing research. Currently, with the way our School of Nursing is set up, there's just not that space available. And so in our new School of Nursing, a significant portion of the third floor will be dedicated just to doctoral students and their research, which will be significant not only for our program, but also our, our patient population here in the state. Talk to me about the unique struggles or, you know, just unique factors of doing nursing in this state. Sure. So I've been a nurse a long time in a variety of settings. There's a lot of medical mistrust in our state, um, which we as nurses get the opportunity to overcome. It really just takes face time with our patients. Um, and so having the opportunity to do that and really engage with them is of paramount importance. And the opportunity to do that really moves us forward as far as compliance and overall adherence to medical um, recommendations. The building was made possible by the state legislature to address the nursing shortage. Lieutenant Governor Delbert Hoseman attended the groundbreaking ceremony. Well, it's nursing. We're going to increase the number of faculty, and this goes with the um, program that we put in effect this year, the Senate and House passed, to relieve $6,000 of debt per year for every nurse that stays in Mississippi. That's critical. Uh, they're a key component of the delivery of health care. So this building will allow them to get more nurses, and then we're going to cover some of the debt it takes to get here. Talk to me about the unique relationship between Mississippi's legislature and the UMMC. Well, it's the University of Mississippi Medical Center. So it's, it's our university, all of our university, and, and we've been very supportive of them, and they do great work. You know, they're the highest level trauma care, went through COVID with us. I mean, you can look at everything they've done. But particularly, they're educating our doctors, our nurses, and our dentists here. So it's very important to us. The building is expected to open in 2026. Coming up, June is Alzheimer's and Brain Awareness Month. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The MPB Public Media app just got an update. It's now easier than ever to interact with your favorite MPB local shows and experts. With the brand new Talk to Us feature, you can engage with your favorite MPB local shows anytime, day or night, directly through the app. Simply select Talk to Us from the MPB Public Media app's menu. There, you can leave a question, share show ideas, or simply just say hello. With the new Talk to Us feature, you have access to your favorite MPB local shows and experts anytime you want to talk. This is MPB Think Radio. Mississippi is our mission. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. June is Alzheimer's and Brain Awareness Month. Doctors are reminding Mississippians to practice healthy habits to reduce developing the disease. Mississippi has the highest rate of Alzheimer's cases in the southeast and the highest mortality rate in the nation. Our Kobe Vance speaks with Kristen White, program manager with the Alzheimer's Association in Mississippi. The Alzheimer's Association's mission is to reduce 
are to drive risk reduction and early detection of Alzheimer's disease. And so that's part of our core mission is um, driving that risk reduction. We know that there are things that we can do, lifestyle factors that we can implement into our everyday life that will actually reduce our risk of uh, developing dementia. And so June is Alzheimer's and Brain Health Awareness Month. And this is just a way that we're trying to get that information out there that there are things that you can do to reduce your risk. You know, I feel like for a long time, people think that Alzheimer's is just a normal part of aging or you just either get it or you don't. There's nothing you can do about it. And we know that's not the case. What are some things that people can do to mitigate their risk of developing Alzheimer's? So a lot of the things that you can do to reduce the risk of Alzheimer's are actually things that most people know to stay healthy in other areas of their life. We talk a lot about um, the brain-heart connection. So what you do to keep your heart healthy is actually keeping your, your brain healthiest too. So what's healthy for your heart is healthy for your brain. Um, and so things like getting exercise, you know, getting that cardiovascular activity, getting that blood um, push to your brain, you know, getting all the oxygen and nutrients to your brain through cardiovascular activity. And then, of course, you know, eating a balanced diet, one that's higher in vegetables and fruit and lean meats and less of those uh, saturated fats and processed foods. Also, things such as challenging your brain, cognitively stimulating your brain through puzzles or learning a new skill or hobby. Uh, and then staying socially involved. Uh, I think we all saw the benefit of how much social interaction has so many different benefits, you know, through the pandemic. And so really staying socially engaged can help your brain as well. Who's at the most risk for developing Alzheimer's? So the biggest risk is age, of course. Um, the older you get, uh, your risk does increase. Family history and genetics do play a role as well. Uh, but there are some populations that are at higher risk. We know that African-Americans are about twice as likely to develop the disease than whites, and Hispanics are about one and a half times as likely. And women account for nearly two-thirds of all people with dementia. What could be done to reach out to those communities to help them specifically to make sure that they understand their risks and how they can prevent it? So we have done several different initiatives around brain health awareness. We're working with the Department of Health and their Healthy Aging Department. Uh, and one of those is really, especially where we live in the South, uh, working with the churches, specifically in those diverse communities since they're at a higher risk, and reaching them through their churches and faith-based communities. Uh, we call it Purple Sunday. Uh, it's a great way to really get into the churches and spread this information about the disease, risk reduction, early detection, and resources for those affected. Well, I'm certain a lot of people have had firsthand experiences seeing a loved one or a friend or a friend of a loved one go through this. Can you describe what families have to go through? This disease is unlike any other because it is not um, just a physical deterioration, but a mental, and you're really losing the person in front of your eyes, um, and it can be it's very difficult um, really having to grieve someone that's still with you physically, um, and then there are some really challenging behaviors that sometimes can associate with Alzheimer's. Um, people can, you know, have 
personality changes and begin to be combative or wonder and get lost. There's, you know, such a thing called sundowning that can happen uh, that can be difficult for caregivers. Uh, And so handling some of those behaviors can be quite difficult. And just even without the aggressive behaviors, you know, people with Alzheimer's and dementia, you know, they can repeat the same questions over and over again. You know, they may ask about loved ones who have passed. And so it's a very exhausting and time consuming for the caregiver of someone living with this disease. And so that's what the association is here to do is to provide help and resources to those caregivers. What are some early signs that people can look for if they or a loved one might be developing Alzheimer's? I get this question a lot, um, and a lot of people will ask, you know, well, I forgot my keys or I lose my keys quite often. Uh, And so while the short-term memory is one of the most common signs of cognitive decline in dementia, it really is going to be how is that affecting your daily life? Um, If you're having short-term memory issues that are affecting your daily life, then that can be an early sign. Um, Like I mentioned earlier, getting lost and wondering is a sign of dementia. And so that's like if, you know, a loved one has driven to the same place their entire life, like the grocery store or their home, and then all of a sudden they got lost and can't remember how to get home. That's a big red flag. Forgetting, you know, dates and appointments. But again, that can be relative um, because we can all forget appointments and things like that. Um, but it's what is a difference from that person's baseline and how it's affecting their daily life. Is there any way to treat the illness once somebody is starting to show symptoms and has been diagnosed? Currently, there are medications available uh, that will help address the symptoms. So it's kind of, it will mask. Uh, the disease kind of like you won't experience as many symptoms and can participate in life for a longer period of time. However, it's not addressing the underlying cause of the disease. So eventually you will progress. Um, It's not going to stop, pause, or improve the symptoms. Uh, However, in the past two years, the FDA has um, approved new medications that actually address the underlying causes of the disease that can slow the progression. Um, Currently, those are not on the market yet, um, only available through research and clinical trials, um, but that is something very exciting and promising for the future. What is it like for families who are trying to support their loved ones who might have been diagnosed? It can be very challenging. Um, I think there's still a stigma around the disease. And so a lot of the times people don't want to reach out for help. They don't want people to know that they're having this difficulty. Um, And then I think a lot of people don't know what resources are available to them. Uh, We have a ton of resources, and there's resources provided throughout the state for people with this disease. Uh, But many people don't know what's available or don't reach out for help. And it can be hard once you're diagnosed because nobody is directing you to those resources, uh, which is frustrating. But um, we have caregiver support groups throughout the state, which are very beneficial to those families um, to be able to go and talk to other caregivers and kind of see, you know, their journey and get feedback from people who have been in their shoes. Kristen White is with the Alzheimer's Association in Mississippi.
Coming up, a law goes into effect this weekend that makes blueberries the official state fruit. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Get your MPB car tag anytime. It doesn't even have to be up for renewal. Simply go to your county office to sign up. When you get an MPB car tag, a portion of the fee helps MPB continue to educate, inform, and entertain Mississippians. For details, visit mpbonline.org slash car tag. We'll see you on the road. This is MPB Think Radio. Mississippi is our mission. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. On July 1st, Mississippi's official state fruit will be the blueberry. Lawmakers passed a law earlier this year after a group of students from Madison County launched a campaign to select the fruit. Blueberries are the largest fruit crop in the state, but this year's yield has been very low. Our Kobe Vance speaks with Eric Stephanie, Extension and Research Professor who specializes in fruits at the Mississippi State Extension Service. Well, actually, we're reaching the end of blueberry harvest season now. Uh, Generally, it starts somewhere in the middle of May, and it runs into July. And most of the commercial harvest is over by July 4th. Pick-your-owns will continue on through into July. But... um, you know, one of the things I need to know this year is that there's going to be a, a real lack of berries from Mississippi due to the freeze that we had in March. Yeah, going to that freeze, can you tell us what happened and how that affected the crop yields this year? It was a situation where it was warmer than normal earlier in the winter, and that uh, sped up the process of bud break in the blueberries. So they actually broke bud and bloomed earlier than normal. And so by the time the freeze came in March, a a lot of uh, these plants even had fruit on them, fruit set or open flowers. And temperatures, depending on where you were in the state, got very low, some some close to 20 degrees, 24 degrees. So those temperatures kill flowers. They kill fruit that are on the bush. So any flower that was actually closed at the time, may have escaped because it's more cold tolerant at, at that stage, but anything that was open is was gone. So the effect of that overall in the state was we're probably looking at a huge loss, maybe 75%, uh, maybe more. What could that mean for farmers in Mississippi who rely on that crop? You know, some farmers have insurance, uh, crop insurance, so they can uh, get some of that back um, based on their previous yields. Um, some just have to eat the cost because there's no way to make any money from that if there's no crop. Uh, so it's a difficult year for sure um, for blueberry growers all over the state. You mentioned earlier, and Mississippi does have one of the earliest growing seasons and harvesting seasons for blueberries. And in a few weeks, we'll see other states begin to start their uh, harvesting seasons that are, especially the states that are more well-known for production, uh, producing blueberries. 
What could this mean for the larger market going forward? Uh, do you think we'll see the same thing in those states? Um, you know, some of these states were affected, some of the other states like uh, Georgia, um, maybe North Carolina had some effect, not as severe as ours, but uh, there was some effect there. States like New Jersey and Michigan, I don't think that we're going to see the same because they didn't have that same impact um, that we have. You know, they, they had their own freeze periods and they may have some effect of that every year, but uh, it's not going to be the same as that event that we saw in, in March for us. Looking back into the past retrospectively, what do you think people could have done to protect their bushes? Uh, is there anything on a commercial scale that uh, farmers could have done or even people who have their own personal you know, bushes in their backyards they could have um, tried to save? Yeah, so this is a good question because uh, with the temperatures that we saw, it'd be extremely difficult. Um, commercial growers, they usually depend on either helicopters or wind machines. Um, in other states, they may use overhead irrigation to create ice on the bush to protect it. But in Mississippi, we don't have a lot of that. But the type of freeze event was not conducive to that. Uh, the temperatures were too cold, and it was just a large air mass. There wasn't like a warm pocket of air up 30, 40 feet that you could push down. It just wasn't there. So that was the problem for commercial growers is there was no really good way to protect that fruit. Now, a homeowner, you could have covered the fruit and maybe saved some of it to create a pocket of, of air there that was a little bit warmer, uh, water beneath the bushes. Um, that'll release a little bit of heat during the night or provide some supplemental heat. So I actually talked to a person who did that. They covered their bushes, put a light bulb under there, and they said that they saved their fruit. But they only had a couple of bushes. So um, that's not really feasible for a larger scale. Looking into the future uh, for people who have taken that that advice and let's say they want to plant their own bushes, when would be a best time to start to get into that crop? Yeah, uh, planting blueberries is a good idea. You can plant them during the winter time. You can plant them in the fall or in the spring. Really, the time period you don't want to plant them is too late in the spring, starting like uh, May. Uh, it gets too hot at that point. But if you can get them established during the winter time or even in the, in the late fall, their uh, root systems grow. They kind of have a better grasp uh, of the of the site, and they'll survive better if they can do uh, have that time period over the winter. One thing I think is interesting about blueberries, especially right now, is that Mississippi passed a law this year that starting July 1st, blueberries will become Mississippi state fruit. I wanted to get your thoughts on why, why blueberries. Well, blueberries are the largest commercial fruit in terms of acreage and production that we have in Mississippi. So that is the probably the primary reason why blueberries are really good. But we also have, a, a you know, they're native to our state. So they grow all over in the woods. Um, you can harvest them just by going out and, and picking them. We have lots of different species of blueberries that are grown uh, that way. Uh, so it, it's really something that's of this place. And so it makes sense that way um, that it is a state fruit. Is there anything else we haven't touched on that you'd like to share with Mississippians? 
you know, one thing about blueberries is we have a terrible crop this year, but that doesn't mean that next year it's going to be terrible. So, you know, just let your plants grow. They'll get through it and, and produce a crop next year, hopefully, if the weather is good enough to do so. Um, looking forward with other crops, blackberries are in season now. Uh, we're going to look at muscadine starting about August. Um, so there's exciting uh, fruits that are still coming on that were somewhat less affected by the freeze because of the time that they uh, bloom. So things like muscadines are, are, are much later than blueberries and blackberries just missed it by a couple of days. So the crop was pretty good there, too. Eric Staffney is an expert in fruit research at the Mississippi State Extension Service. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.